it's Monday, the 12th of February, and welcome to our holiday edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. The presidential office has called on the nation's medical community not to strike in protest of the plan to increase the medical school admissions quota. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Coming up for a special sports roundup in depth, we dissect South Korea's disappointing campaign at the AFC Asian Cup. We also have a special interview with Ed Park, the author of the hit work Personal Days, who is back with his second novel in 15 years. And today we have the return of Rich's career manual, this time introducing Korean alcohol. Let's begin, Korea 24. The presidential office has asserted that the government's decision to increase the medical school quota is, quote-unquote, irreversible, censuring moves by doctors to take collective action as unjustifiable. This comes as a medical association is set to discuss late Monday plans for a general strike. For more on this story and the rest of the day's headlines, we have joining us in the studio now our KBS World Radio News Editor, Ku Hee-jin. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, Daniel. So there's been a growing public concern about a possible vacuum in healthcare should doctors go on strike. So what's the latest message from the top office? Well, a senior presidential office told, uh, official told reporters on Monday that talks on the quota expansion have long dragged on without progress, with past administrations repeatedly failing to adopt the policy. The official said the country has reached a point of no return regarding the shortage of doctors, especially in essential medicine, and that there is no justification for doctors to walk out en masse. Stressing that the number of doctors in the country only tripled while the number of lawyers increased over tenfold in the past 40 years, the official t- urged uh, doctors to cooperate from a broader point of view beyond the realm of politics. The official added that the government will thoroughly prepare for quota expansions and increase of 2,000 for the 2025 academic year while continuing dialogue to persuade the medical community. Meanwhile, the Korean Intern Resident Association, representing the nation's medical residents and interns, is set to convene an extraordinary general meeting online Monday night to settle on their response to the government's planned expansion of the quota for medical school admissions. Can you tell us more? Well, indeed, earlier, residents and interns at the nation's so-called Big Five General Hospitals, including Seoul National University Hospital and Severance Hospital, had collected opinions in their own surveys to take part in group action. The Korean Society of Emergency Medicine also threatened to walk out unless the government shows a resolve to engage in talks and cooperate with the medical community. The Korean Medical Association plans to stage 16 municipal-level rallies nationwide on Thursday as its Emergency Steering Committee mulls over a meeting of regional doctors' group representatives in Seoul on Saturday. The Health Ministry, which has issued an order against doctors' group uh, action, including a group resignation, has pledged to draw up emergency measures to prevent a vacuum in medical services. Yes, and we will update our listeners on the developments on this issue in the days to come. Mm. Uh, Turning now to the latest from Pyongyang, 
North Korea announced that it's developed new controllable shells for a multiple rocket launcher and its ballistic control system. What can you tell us? Well, the North state-run Korean Central News Agency said on Monday that the Academy of Defense Science test-fired 240-millimeter caliber shells and verified their accuracy the previous day. The KCNA said the latest technical advances will lead to a revaluation of the multiple rocket launchers strategic value and utility and furthermore expand its role in the battlefield. South Korea's military stated it detected Sunday's test firing of the 240mm caliber shells with a military official saying that the shells fired from near Nampo, South Pyongyang province flew dozens of kilometres before falling into the Yellow Sea. While the North is presumed to have extended the range of the shells and improved their accuracy with its latest claimed success, such development is viewed as a political response to aggravated inter-Korean tensions as well as an economic attempt to expand arms trade with Russia. Turning back to South Korea, President Yoon sung yeols approval rating slightly rose on week to 39.2%. Can you break down the figures for us? Well, according to a real meter survey of 2011 adults nationwide between the 5th and the 8th of February, 39.2% of respondents gave a positive assessment, up 1.9 percentage points from the previous week. Negative assessments came from 57.7% of respondents, down 1.7 percentage points, and real meter attributed the gains in Yoon's approval rating to the administration's push to expand after-school state childcare services and a planned expansion of medical school admissions quota. The survey, commissioned by the Energy Economic newspaper, had a confidence level of 95%, with a margin of error of plus or minus 2.2 percentage points. Turning now to the world of sports, South Korean swimmer Kim Woo-min won the gold medal in the men's 400-metre freestyle race at the 2024 World Aquatics Championships, becoming the nation's first world swimming champion in 13 years. Can you tell us more? Well, the 22-year-old came in first in the final race on Monday at the Aspire Dome in Doha, Qatar, with his personal best of 3 minutes and 42.2. 71 seconds, shaving off 1.21 seconds from his previous world championship record and finishing 0.15 seconds ahead of 2022 uh, world champion uh, Elijah Winnington of Australia. Kim is the only second Korean to achieve the feat alongside swimming legend and Olympic gold medalist Park Tae-hwan who won the world title in 2007 and 2011. Um, Kim, however, came short of breaking Park's national record of 3 minutes and 41.53 seconds, while 2023 world champ Samuel Short of Australia was absent ahead of the Summer Olympics in Paris. Kim faced the tough competition in the race for gold with second to fourth ranked swimmers, including 2020 Olympic gold medalist Ahmed Hafnawi of Tunisia, all competing against Kim. Meanwhile, the national football team head coach Jurgen Klinsmann, who had previously said he would depart for his home in the US this week, left early, departing at the weekend. Can you elaborate? 
According to the Korea Football Association on Sunday, Klinsmann had departed the previous day without a date set for his return. Upon the nation's team, a national team's return after a hapless 2-0 defeat to Jordan in the semifinals of the 2023 AFC Asian Cup in Qatar last Thursday, the 59-year-old German coach said he planned to depart for a break in the US for the following week. While Klinsmann had also revealed plans to travel to Europe to check up on national team members playing for European clubs. It remains unclear whether he will attend the KFA's Technical Development Committee meeting after the Lunar New Year holiday to review results from the Asian Cup. Uh, Klinsmann, who has come under fire for uh, failing to bring home the Asian Cup title after uh, 64 years, despite an all-time competitive roster in the national team, has maintained he does not agree that the team failed and stated that he has no intent to step down. Meanwhile, Yonhap News reported on Monday that the KFA will review Klinsmann's possible dismissal after the Lunar New Year holiday, citing an unidentified official. It said that the KFA committee will likely come to a decision sometime next week, but that the KFA president, Chong Mong-gyu, will have the final say on the matter. Yes, we'll have a further breakdown of South Korea's Asian Cup campaign next. But first, we wrap up our news briefing here. Thank you for bringing us those updates, Heejin. Thank you. Qatar were crowned champions of Asia on Saturday after they beat Jordan in the final of the AFC Asian Cup. It was a remarkable back-to-back championship for the host country and another landmark achievement for Middle Eastern football. However, for East Asian football, it was a chastening chapter once again. Tournament favourites Japan and South Korea were sent packing in the quarterfinals and semi-finals respectively, and it was especially disappointing for the Tegel Warriors, who had been seeking to claim their first Asian Cup title in 64 years. To dissect where it went wrong for South Korea and what lies ahead for the team, we have two guests joining us on the line today. First, we have our regular Monday Sports Roundup contributor, reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yonhap News Agency. Ji-ho, hello. Hi, it's great to be here. And this week, we also have joining us on the line Mario Lemos, a football coach from Portugal who served as the head coach for the Bangladesh men's national football team. And he's also been closely following Asian football as well. Mr Lemos, hello and thank you for your time today as well. Hello, thank you for having me. Okay, so Gio, let me start with you. Korea's campaign has been seen as bitterly disappointing, especially considering how far we got in the tournament. But can you first give us your quick overall assessment of South Korea's performance at the Asian yeah. Cup this year? Sure. Well, I guess on paper, if you look at the fact that Korea went to the semifinals, which is a, uh, a step further than you know, how they went, how, how the things went in 2019, might be considered a success. But Obviously, you got to have a proper context of a uh, situation here. Uh, you know, I, I think you can make a reasonable argument that this is the most talented Korean national team ever. Uh, you know, fans of the 2002 World Cup might disagree, but I would think that their assessment might be based on the accomplishment itself of reaching the semifinals rather than their actual talent level of indiv- individual players. Uh, you know, this year's team had Son Heung-min, who's in the conversation as perhaps the best Asian football player ever, and also, you know, Korea team this year had Kim Min-jae, uh, right now the best defender from Asia. He's also in the conversation as well. So, you know, those two as anchors on the offensive and defensive end, 
uh, plus other pieces who are playing important roles for the European teams or you know, the two-time K-League champions. And Ulsan had a bunch of players on the national team as well. So if you bring those, those uh, different ingredients all together, they had the makings of a really, really good team that should have done a lot better than going to the semifinals uh, and also losing the way they lost to Jordan. Uh, frankly, Korea, I think they were lucky to lose 2-0 in that game. Uh, did not register a shot on goal. Uh, we're just badly outplayed in every aspect of the game. So uh, for this particular group of team, uh, you know, not to come home with a trophy, uh, that's a disappointment. It uh, seems like a huge waste of talent that Korea had uh, at this moment in time in, in national football. Yes, Mr. Lemos, Korean fans are still trying to get a grip uh, with what happened in Qatar. What was your overall impression of South Korea's performance at the Asian Cup? It was, you know, like Gio said, because of the quality of the players, you always expect a bit more from the, the Korean national team. No doubt they had in, in the knockout stage two difficult opponents, uh, Australia and, and Saudi Arabia. Where I got a little bit disappointed was against Jordan, really, because what we lack in, in Korea now is, uh, what, what I feel as a coach, is, is no identity, not a style of play. You cannot really understand how Korea wants to play, how will Korea bring out the best out of their best players and you you have quality no doubt but if they don't perform in the field and that's what we lack an identity for korea how does korea want to play and and actually in, in a semi-final you saw a jordan team that you knew exactly how they're going to play what's their game plan what's their style of play and that's what i think at the moment korea is lacking a style of play identity um because not just quality that shows you you cannot win a tournament like that you need to have an identity, a style, and of course, 11 players that know what to do in the field. Okay, let's break it down a bit further then. Uh, Mr. Lemos, you said there was no intensity or style of play. Mm. Whose fault is that then? Is it the players themselves, perhaps not being able to uh, carry out what the coach wanted, or is it something to the coaching? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's a good question. I believe, you know, I know Klisman has been very highly criticised because... Of course, I think at this level, in a coach like Krizma, of course, he has tactics, he has organization rules and, and what he wants to expect for the players. As a coach, I know it takes time. But also, you have, I think, I, if I'm a fan, not just a fan, you have to see a bit more. You have to see a bit more. I couldn't see it, really. As a coach, and I'm a coach, I couldn't see what Korea wants to do in the field when they have the ball. For sure, I know Krizma was an ex-player. Ex-players like to give freedom to their players. But what I think in Korea is when you give that freedom, freedom, you, I feel you have confusion. The players don't have solutions. They don't know what to do. And many times you have players moving one way and the ball being passed the other way. Then that freedom is good for sure when you have come. But I think now they need organization. They need more tactics and a better game plan. Or, or I don't want to say better game plan, but a, a game plan that everybody knows what to do. I think at this moment, not everybody really understands what to do in the, in the field. Right. Jiho, what do you make of perhaps uh, some of uh, Mr. Lemos's uh, comments there about the uh, criticism over uh, Klinsman's tactics? Uh, Klinsman, the uh, South Korea's head coach, Jürgen Klinsman, has faced a lot of criticism from fans throughout the tournament. Uh, what did you make of his tactics? What, and what are your views on the criticism surrounding him? Yeah, so I think Coach Lamos made a really good point about Korea not having an identity. Uh, you know, it's something that Paulo Bento's team really had. We kind of knew what 
we're going to get from Bento's teams. You know, they're, they like to you know, play out from the back, really patient, and that kind of approach really held up against some of the big teams, especially at the World Cup in 2022, which also happened to be in Qatar. Now, you know, we talk about Klinsman giving his players sort of a freedom, kind of free reign to do their own thing. When the team wins, the coach in this case would have been praised for empowering his players. Uh, but if not, which was the case in Qatar, you know, the coach will be blamed for not putting those players in a position to succeed. And like I said, you can have all the finest ingredients in the world, but if you don't know what to do with them, uh, won't be make, won't be able to make anything out of them. Uh, basically, uh, Klinsmann failed to bring out the best in the players that he had. Now, obviously, players cannot be off the hook, cannot be let, let off the hook 100%. You know, they have to still go out on the field and execute and, uh, you know, play to their to the best of their abilities. Uh, I, I don't know if some of the guys were able to do that in Qatar during the tournament. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the coach has to, you know, he, he, he's got the final say on how the team plays out, out on the field. You know, you have this, uh, you know, the criticism that Klinsmann had faced even before uh, taking over in Korea. I uh, remember Philip Lam, one of the players in Bayern Munich that he coached, he wrote in his, uh, uh, in, in his book that, uh, you know, there was a time when uh, Klinsmann had only been emphasizing the physical conditioning, physical drills, and had not given any tactical instruction to the players. So whenever Klinsmann was not around, the players themselves had to have their own tactical meetings uh, before matches just to figure out how to, how to you know, take on certain opponents. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was the same case with the Korean national team, uh, you know, players having their own meetings to discuss tactics because the coach himself wasn't giving them any. Um, so, you know, that's always been the big knock against, against the Klinsman even before he came over to Korea. And obviously, apparently he hasn't really changed uh, any of those old habits. Mr. Lemos, there has been intense calls from fans here in Korea for uh, Klinsman to step down. What do you make of such calls? As a fellow coach, do you have sympathy for his position? No, of course, I have sympathy. I know it, it takes time. That's in, in, you know, and I'm not inside the locker room. Maybe, maybe Klinsman is doing everything and, and we don't know. Like Gio said, maybe the players are not, or they don't understand or, or they are not able to do what the coaches are. I, I, I have no idea. It's always, uh, always tough. But at the end of the day, now you know when you, I think the FA, the Korean FA, pick Klisman, you know, has now you have to give them time, you know. Hopefully, and sometimes maybe this AFC Cup can be good. You know, they made some mistakes. Maybe Klisman also has to say, hey, I have to step up and find a solution now. I think clearly, I think Klisman now after this AFC Cup, and he's an ex-player and he's a national team coach. He surely has experience, knows what went wrong. And this can be now a platform for him to, to improve and to say, okay, this is what do I have to do with this coaching stuff. I hope so. I think that's the, you know, the, the best thing they can think, take from this AFC Cup is, okay, this is what we did wrong. This is what we have to do better. And, and we have to play a different way. And we have to find a way. And, and a national team, you have time to, to prepare. Now he has time to prepare and to work. And for March, that's the next game to, for the FIFA qualifiers. Jiho, do you think there's any chance that Klinsman uh, will step down or any chance that the KFA might uh, fire him, considering the criticism? And also, there are growing calls for the head of the KFA, Chong Myung-gu, to step down as well. Any chances of that? Yeah, so as far as Klinsman resigning, he's already said a couple of times that he's not going to step down. Uh, you know, just considering the financial, financial situations with his contract, uh, I don't think he's going to step down because... 
in that case, I don't think he'll be paid for the uh, remainder of his contract. If he does get fired, uh, I think there's a clause in his contract that forces the KFA to pay him for the remainder of his contract, and obviously his assistants as well. So they're going to have to pay them as well. Uh, so there's, there's going to be a lot of money. Uh, and you know, KFA is building a new, uh, uh, new headquarters down in Chonan, so that, that's costing them a big chunk of money as well. So I think you know, money is the one thing that's kind of making them hesitant as far as uh, sacking Clinton at this juncture. But obviously the pressure is really high on them to take some sort of action. And he's been really, really unpopular. Just barely a year into his tenure, um, about, what, 13, 14 matches in. I don't know, I don't remember anybody being this unpopular, uh, even among the famously passionate Korean national team fans. So I don't know if KFA has any choice other than to really sack him at some point before the World Qualifying campaign goes any deeper. Uh, Korea will be playing Thailand in March on home and home. Uh, So if they wanted to take action, uh, they should probably do it within the next couple of weeks and find some uh, find a new uh, bench boss to you know to go into the uh, Thailand match coming up in later in March uh, now uh, as far as reviewing Asian Cup uh, when explaining the decision not to step down right away Klinsman said he wanted to go back to Korea and sit down with the KFA and discuss what had gone wrong and what had gone right uh, but he was actually gone back to his home in the US uh, over on Saturday just a couple of days after landing back in Korea so the KFA will have some sort of a post-mortem meeting uh, this, this coming week to discuss the tournament. Uh, but the man most responsible for the uh, elimination in the semifinals, I would say, the coach himself, is not going to be around in person. So they might, I don't know, have connect him on Zoom, uh, having, having him come on a video conference to, to go over some of the things that had gone over uh, during the Asian Cup. But uh, the fact that he's not there in person to attend this meeting uh, you know, I think that's very irresponsible for, on, on himself. So it's not going to help the, with the public opinion as, as well. Um, so the, the pressure is mounting on the KFA uh, to fire Klinsman. As far as Chong Mung-gyu, uh, he's the man responsible for hiring uh, Klinsman in the first place. And also there's a lot of pressure on this guy to either step down or I don't know if the board would have any some sort of a power to fire him at this point. But uh Again, you know, with the two, with the World Cup, with the next World Cup two years out, I think the time to change, go through a leadership change, a leadership change might be now. Uh, do it before you can get any closer to the big tournament, uh, it's good because it's going to take a while to find his replacement. That's one of the biggest jobs in Korean sports, uh, head of the Korea Football Association. So, uh, you know, not anybody can do it. Uh, not anybody wants to do it. So, and Chong Mong-gyu might be seeking a fourth term. Uh, pretty soon. So, uh, but the fact that there's so much negativity around this sport, around the organization, uh, m- might be calling for a new leadership at the top. But uh, I think, you know, the timing is really, really important. You wouldn't ideally want to do this too close to the World Cup, mm. which is in 2026. So, and, uh, you know, it might seem like a knee-jerk reaction after an early elimination from the tournament. But uh, I think, you know, if you wanted to make a change, sweeping changes, uh, this might be it. Another one of the reasons why fans were so disappointed was that there was so much expectation before the tournament. Uh, many Korean fans were hoping that Korea would be able to win their first Asian Cup title in 64 years. There was also talks, uh, predictions of a Korea-Japan final. But in the end, it was uh, three Middle Eastern teams that uh, completed the t- uh, four teams in the semi-final. And 
the finals, of course, against two Middle East teams. Mr. Lemos, do you th- what did you make of the fact that uh, Middle Eastern teams did so well uh, this year once again? Uh, what factors led to Qatar's win, for example? What did they do better that Korea was not able to do? I think in the Middle East now, and I've been working in the Middle East, I have the chance to work there. The investment and the, and the passion for the game has been huge. And I think they, in the Middle East, they, they have a plan and they have, they know what they want to do and they want to be best in football. Then it's been crazy over there. And you have an example of Saudi Arabia now, that the money they're investing there, Qatar with the World Cup. But what you, I see in the football aspect, I always saw these, these, these football players from this Middle East, you know, tough players, aggressive players, fighters, very, a lot of discipline. But now the, the game is changing, really. The, change, the training is improving there. Then you see a lot of technical players, players that usually never left Asia. Uh, you, you have the case of uh, Al Murati for Jordan, great player. I mean, uh, you know, against Korea, I was like, who is this guy? And he's playing in France then. That's that's a big investment, and I think, and we're speaking about this topic about Qatar, for sure, it's extremely hard to 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 win back-to-back championships. But the difference between Qatar, I feel, and in, in Korea, and talking about the, the present, is consistency. Then the same thing can happen to to Korea now if you change Klisman and you bring another coach that doesn't fit the style. It doesn't matter. Qatar, you see, the last couple of years they've been working with the same type of coaches, playing the same style of player bringing players from the academy, and they have a style, identity from, from the bottom to up. Even now, you know, they had, uh, before the AFC Cup, they had Carlos Queiroz, Portuguese coach, coach Iran, uh, coached all over the world, coached national team Portuguese, and he didn't fit the style. And he, they sacked him. They sacked him right before the, the, and it was a big, uh, a lot of money involved. Maybe for them, money's not so much a problem. But that's the thing. I think the Qatar FA from the top, they know what they want. They know how to play. Of course, now it's easy to say they, they won two times and say, okay, that. But you, you can see it. And their last coaches, you know, same style, Spanish, Portuguese, play same style. And we have a case here, Paulo Bento, and you know, saying, Paulo Bento is totally different than Quisman. Then if you bring another coach that is totally di- different than Quisman and doesn't fit what you want, and that's where I think that must be the KFA choosing the identity of Korea, what we want for our national team, how we want them to play. Do we bring a coach that can fit this, or do we bring a coach that will make it happen? And that's where I think the KFA has to make a, a decision, really. Okay, well, South Korea will have to wait at least another four years to claim the Asian Cup title. And in the meantime, there is, of course, the World Cup coming up in 2026, as we've mentioned, with qualifiers starting again in March. Looking to the World Cup qualifiers and beyond, though, what lessons do South Korea need to take away from this Asian Cup? What do you, what would you like to see change? Let me see. Start with you, Gio. Yeah. So you know, I'd like to see maybe you know less reliance on the top guys, especially when you try to generate offensive chances. Uh, right now, the system is basically give the ball to Son Heung-min or Lee Gang-in and let him, let them figure things out. You know, I'd like to see a little more structure on the offensive end, and, and you know, they would make them a little less predictable for the, for the opposing teams to, to guard against Korea. Um, so I'd like to see a little bit of, little bit of that. Uh, obviously, tighter defense, uh, midfield and down to, to the backs, uh, where, you know, there were a lot of matches when Korea committed too many turnovers for their own good. Uh, the, you know, the two Jordan goals in the semifinals directly results from 
you know, some you know ill-timed uh, passes from in, in their own zone, really. So you know, kind of you know cut down on turnovers, cut down on mistakes, uh, be a little, uh, I guess, more clinical uh, around the goal. Uh, just be better, I guess, or I don't know, maybe hire a different coach. Uh, so, look, you know, the qualifying campaign, obviously there are more slots out of coming out of Asia. Uh, it's, it's become a little easier now than before to qualify out of Asia, right? Uh, there, there are more spots available. But but at the same time, you know, teams across Asia get, are getting better. Uh, you know, Malaysia, Korea could not be Malaysia, uh, even though they're ranked 130th in the world. Uh, Thailand could be a pretty tough team to handle, back-to-back in, in March during the qualification campaign. So, And we saw all those Middle East teams really thrive uh, at this Asian Cup. So I guess the overall quality of football across the continent is getting better. So I guess the days of Korea just essentially being guaranteed to, do, to, go, into, to go into the World Cup uh, might be coming to an end. So uh, just got to be better in uh, uh, many different aspects of the game. Uh, but I think one thing for me is just to you know play more of a team game, I guess, uh, instead of just you know, letting letting the, some of the talented right. guys to to try to figure things out on the field. We just have a minute left, Mr. Lemos. What would you say to Klinsman now? Oh, that's a, that's a, oh, oh well, you know, as a fellow coach, you know, I, of course I, I, I would give him support. And 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 the good thing about football, and my experience in football, you have a bad day, you lose the game. It's a great opportunity to do something different. And uh, if I was a coach and looking at this team, and I, like Gio said, for sure, structure, for sure, improve the team. But also, and for me, and the first thing I see is how can I bring the best out of these players? We have, and, and I was watching the game in Portugal, and everybody was the same thing. Portuguese commenters said, so much quality. How can this team play better football? And that, as, as Klisman, I would say, okay, how can I bring up the best out of these players? And there's a way for sure, and Klisman. We're going to work with them every day. Then he sees them every day. What then is how can I bring it out of the best uh, in terms of individual quality? I think the best in Asia. Then that would be my question for my 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 my, my question. No, my question. No, to try to help Klisman out. And I think Klisman, that's what he's going to do. Watch these games and say, okay, what can I do better? And what can I bring out from sort of Min Lee Kang Min Minje, all these guys for sure. Hopefully, he can do it. I don't know. And I think one thing Korea wants more than winning. What I feel also is the quality of football people want in Korea a better quality of football and I think that's something that you know I think Christmas should be able to do also Okay, we'll leave it there for today and hope for a better future for the national team going forward. We've been speaking to Yujiyo from the Yonap News Agency and football coach Mario Lemos Thank you both for your time today Thank you Okay, thank you Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sport around the peninsula. Are you a fan of K-pop? Then be sure to join us on Tuesday to get the latest in the entertainment and K-pop world. For all the bookworms out there, tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our literary critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Join us on an adventure every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea24.
Ed Park is a Korean American writer and editor who wrote his first hit debut novel, Personal Days, in 2008. But it wasn't until last November, 15 years later, that he returned with his second novel called Same Bed, Different Dreams. Publishers Weekly described it as an ingenious epic of Korean and Korean American history framed in a satire of the publishing and tech industries. The book was also listed by the New York Times as one of the 100 most notable books of 2023. To talk about his career and ask him why it took him so long to come out with his second book, we have joining us via video call today Mr. Ed Park himself. Mr. Park, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for your time today. Can you first briefly tell our listeners just a bit more about who you are and your career in your own words uh, before we talk about the new book? Sure. I was born in Buffalo, New York uh, many years ago. My parents uh, had come there from Korea and uh, my, my father uh, was and is a psychiatrist there. And I, you know, grew up in Buffalo. There were, there was a small but, you know, kind of tight-knit Korean community there. Uh, my cousins lived there. My grandparents eventually lived there. Um, and I, you know, I, I had friends who were Korean and, and others who weren't. But it was also, you know, the 70s and 80s. And, you know, I did sort of stand out a bit um, if, if you were, if you were, Asian, uh, you, you, you definitely stood out a bit. Um, so there was, you know, kind of a process of, of assimilation, uh, to a degree. And, uh, it was, but, you know, the whole time I, I, we didn't really visit Korea that much. I, I visited once when I was, uh, 11 years old. Um, but I, you know, I learned about Korea from my parents, especially through the stories my father would tell. Mm. And I was always very, you know, I was I was interested in it, but it was also a bit mysterious. And it was kind of like as I got older, uh, I went to college, um, and I eventually went to graduate school uh, at Columbia for uh, a writing program. And there, I took a class on modern Korean history, which really um, I found very stimulating, very interesting. And a lot of the ideas in in this novel, uh, you know. Were kind of, the seeds were planted a bit during that class. Um, in any case, I worked uh, at a newspaper here in New York called The Village Voice, which was once kind of the kind of the great alternative weekly newspaper here. Mm. And I worked there for, for many years. I was an ed editor and a writer. I was a movie critic. I became the literary editor there. And... Uh, my first novel, which is called Personal Days, came out in 2008. And that was really like a um, kind of a, a dark office comedy, uh, <laughs> loosely inspired by my experience uh, at The Voice, um, especially as, uh, you know, ownership changed and um, people were laid off left and right, including myself. Uh, so that book came out back then. And uh, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show that it, it's been 15 years uh, between books, and a lot has happened since then. I had a family, uh, I had two, uh, two sons, and uh, the, the oldest uh, just turned 16. Um, and I was busy with, you know, a lot of a lot of different 
jobs and, and just life in general. I taught uh, for a while at uh, places in Columbia. I currently teach at Princeton. And I also worked in the publishing industry um, uh, as a book editor. Right. So there's a lot going on. But but about nine years ago, I did, which, which now sounds like a long time, around 2014, I did kind of have this... Um, story idea or just these characters these voices that uh eventually became same bed different dreams and in this book i really um wanted to explore uh kind of ideas and and figures and events in korean and korean american history and kind of include them in in sort of the the usual way i write which is more of a comic novel sure uh type of uh you know type of uh book so whether that worked you know will people seem to like it but it's it's definitely like a couple different kinds of writing uh that merge in this in this novel right so can you tell us a bit more about the new book same bed different dreams a couple of lines of what it's about essentially of course so it on one level there are three storylines one of them uh kind of more or less the present day uh concerns a, a guy named soon sheen um who is he used to be a writer but he works at a at a big tech company called gloat g-l-o-a-t that is kind of a combination of every big, every big <laughs> tech company that you have here in america there's social media there's like online you know uh you buy stuff online you you know everything you can imagine is is sort of wrapped up in here and uh he is invited at the beginning of the book by an old friend to meet a korean author who has who has come to new york city to visit to uh they're having a big kind of literary dinner party for him and so soon is living outside of new york but he comes in and uh, you know, it's it's a big kind of party scene, lots of different sort of uh, Asian-American, Korean-American literary artistic types are there. Uh, very, you know, it's it's kind of funny. It's a satirical take on on publishing, on technology, things like that. But at the end of the dinner, he has this manuscript that um, the name of the Korean writer is uh, in the book. They, they change they change his name to Echo, E-C-H-O. Uh, it's E-Cho. And so they, they kind of condense it into the American word Echo. And soon finds himself in possession of a unfinished uh, book by this writer. And it's called Same Bed, Different Dreams. And so there's a book within a book. And inside this, this unfinished novel is uh, what is purports to be the secret history of the Korean provisional government, which real, uh, I'm sure your listeners know, a real uh, kind of a, a patriotic uh, body that was formed in 1919 after the March 1st right. movement. And uh, Syngman Rhee, who was already in American exile, right. um, was elected president. And it was, you know, kind of a, more of a figurehead um, body than it didn't really have any actual power. It was based in Shanghai. Right. So one thing that this uh, book within the book um, imagines is if they actually did have power and 
all these different people, mostly Korean, but some some not. Mm. People like um, Marilyn Monroe and James Dean and Jack London were all kind of involved in the KPG. Mm. And uh, so so those two kind of those two storylines, uh, but Soon Sheen's life right. uh, as a as a tech worker and this this book about uh, the Korean provisional government kind of go hand in hand. And there's a third storyline, which is a little more complicated, but um, uh, kind of connects the various characters and has scenes set uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s and so on. Uh, it, right. It, it, it kind of jumps by decades. So. Um, that's that's a very messy nutshell. But that, that's <laughs> so that's of, the setup. Um, that's the setup. Yeah. What we found interesting as well, though, it's quite a departure from your first book. You said the first book it's about office life, sure. essentially of New Yorkers, and uh, I read an interview that uh, that's what you wanted to write about the life of office workers uh, in New York, rather than your identity as a, a Korean American at the time. But the second book, saying bed, different dreams, is far mm-hmm. more heavily imbued with Korean culture and history. Can you tell us about uh, that shift? Was that challenging? Why did you want to uh, explore that more at this time as well? Well, you know, to be honest, I'd actually written, I'd written several books before Personal Days that were never published. And one of them had a lot of uh, actually Korean, uh, <laughs> Korean content, uh, slightly different from this book, but... Um, Things like, anyway, there, there was a lot of Korean stuff in there. Um, Personal Days was a very quick uh, novel. It was almost like written directly. It was like torn out of my life as a as a worker, as a you know. I was an editor, but in the in the novel, it, it, we don't specify what I don't specify what kind of company it is. So people are just kind of going around and seeing the uh, workplace collapse around them, and race doesn't really enter into it. Um, I, I was more interested in, in kind of workplace dynamics and that sort of thing. And I felt like, I mean, looked at another way, my, I, I'm Korean. I've thought about <laughs> Koreanness, you know, for my whole life. And it didn't seem like the right uh, venue to explore that. Like that book was about office life. Um, when I got the first ideas for this book, I knew immediately that there was something, you know, this would be an opportunity to kind of, um, tap into those other sources of, of interest, uh, to me, you know, Mm. things from, from Korean history, the KPG, um, you know, very, uh, interesting, somewhat problematic figures like, like Syngman Rhee, uh, Philip. Philip J. Son, Soja Peel, um, the Korean writer Lee Sang, um, and the Korean American writer Young Hill Kong. You know, these are just some of the characters who who kind of I, I pulled into this novel simply because they they interested me, and I thought it would be fun to you know see what all these seemingly unrelated things that uh, have held my interest, like to see if right. they could if I could make them connect in a, in a interesting and entertaining way. Have you had any response from uh, Korean readers? I think it'd be interesting to see what they think, especially because of the real life historical context you've put in there. And also, do you think there could be any plans for this book to be translated into Korean at some point? Is that something you'd like to see? I would love to see it. I mean, 
you know, if there are any uh, <laughs> Korean publishers who are interested, um, please, please uh, be in touch. Um, you know, my personal days was also not uh, translated to Korean. And, you know, I, I understand it's, it's, you know, I, I was in, in Korea a couple years ago and, you know, most of the books in translation are kind of the best selling uh, books in America. It's not really about uh, Korean American identity. Like, I don't know that that's sort of a, of much interest to, to readers in Korea. Um, I will say though, that, you know, this is in a way my attempt through, through fiction to make sense of uh, Korea's very kind of momentous, um, somewhat tragic, somewhat triumphant century. Um, it, it kind of starts, you know, the historical things start in the early 20th century and, and really um, they go up to the present, but they kind of like climax in the, in the 80s, 1980s. Um, I really did, you know, one reason it took me nine years to write was just um, kind of realizing the scope and the um, maybe the gravity of what I was trying to pull off. Um, and uh, in terms of Korean readers, um, you know, they're aside from my family who they, they've, <laughs> they've all read it now and, and have, have really um, gone deep into it and, and enjoyed it. Um, yes, I've, I've heard from especially Korean American uh, readers, other, other Korean American writers in particular, um, you know, one of the first readers was, was a writer named Kathy Park Hong, um, who's an incredible poet, but also wrote this book called Minor Feelings, which was um, a sensational collection of, of essays, uh, many of which reflect on uh, mm. being being a Korean American. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a there's a writer named Ilyan Wu who. Uh, best-selling New York Times author this year with, uh, or last year with a, a, a book called Master Slave Husband Wife. Um, and she's been a, she's been a real cheerleader. Um, there's a writer named Chris Lee, who I think actually lives in Korea now, um, but publishes in, in America, who wrote a really uh, very uh, good and interesting take, right. uh, review of it in The Atlantic. Um and I thought she had a really good point that this idea was so one of the one of the aspects of my book is it imagines the KPG still existing today and mm. working secretly. I don't really say how, but kind of, you know, working secretly to uh, bring about some kind of unification of, of North and South Korea. Sure. And and she wondered if this was actually more of a dream of the Korean diaspora. So people mm. like me who. You know, I, I've never, you know, right. I actually did live in Korea for about nine months after college. That's a different story. But, you know, I wasn't raised there. Right. I don't, I don't, can't really speak Korean, though I can understand it. Um, and it's, it's like almost a fantasy of, right. you know, healing the, you know, if the country could somehow be, uh, be one again, you know, and, and, and she's, you know, her view says that might not be what Koreans in Korea are actually, you know. Uh, concerned about these days, maybe it was you know in decades past, but um, but it was it was it was a really good review. I mean, she she was she was very complimentary, but she brought up an interesting point. Well, 
It's been fascinating to talk to you. The time has flown by. Uh, we are almost out of time. Just one more very quick oh, wow. question. Okay. Uh, are there any more yes. works on the way? Will uh, your fans have to wait uh, nine more years for the next work? <laughs> or, in fact, you mentioned earlier that no. you have some other uh, unpublished works. Could they ever see the light of day, do you think? I don't think those will. I mean, they're they're very much uh, of their time. I'm, you know, I'm proud of them, but I, they're mass, you know, they're very big uh, books. And I, I don't think I, I, I don't want to look backwards at this point. So I have a story collection that hopefully will be out soon. The, you know, the stories are all done, um, let's say in the next uh, year or so. But I am working on another novel, which, you know, I don't think will be as uh, kind of sprawling as this one. Like when I was writing this book, Same Bed, Different Dreams, I was like, I w- I'm going to put take everything I've stored up, <laughs> every thought I've had, every like fictional idea I've had having to do with Korea. It's all going in this book. And it was a it was kind of a great feeling to feel like it was all out there. And then, of course, I had other ideas. And so the. I don't have a title for, for the novel that I'm working on, but it it will be in kind of a different register, but I do anticipate there being, um, you know, kind of different sections, right. each with a different uh, tone right. and time period. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been fascinating to talk to you and hear your story today. We've been uh, talking to writer Ed Park and his second novel, Same Bed, Different Dreams, is out now. Mr. Park, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Next up, we have the return of Richard Larkin's Career Manual. This is a series of segments that was first produced by Richard, our staff editor, last year. And he's back today talking about traditional Korean alcohol. That means this one is strictly for the adults. So here's another edition of Rich's Career Manual. Hello everyone, my name is Richard Larkin and welcome to My Career Manual, where I help introduce you to everything Korean. Today we are embarking on a journey through the diverse and flavorful world of Korean alcohol. I will tell you more about the hidden gems that Korea has to offer, where you can find them, and I will take a look at the latest alcohol trends in the country with a special guest. So, shall we get started? When people think of Korean alcohol, one of the first things that springs to mind is soju. Soju is a popular distilled alcoholic beverage. It is typically clear and colourless and is traditionally made from rice, wheat or barley. The alcohol content of soju can vary but it is generally around 16 to 25% alcohol by volume. If you have watched a Korean drama, movie or have been to a Korean restaurant, you would have most likely seen this drink. But did you know that there are variations of the popular drink? You can find different types of soju depending on the region you are in. Andong, North Gyeongsang Province. It is a city known for its rich cultural heritage and is famous for its preservation of Korean traditions, including Hanuk, the traditional Korean housing. And it is also the place where you can find Andong Soju. This is considered one of the oldest and most famous varieties of soju, known for its unique production methods and distinct characteristics. Andong Soju is often made from glutinous rice. This choice of rice helps give it a distinctive flavour profile. 
It is also produced using traditional methods that have been passed down through generations. This includes fermentation in ongi, which are traditional Korean earthenware vessels. And andong soju has a higher alcohol content compared to regular soju, sometimes exceeding 30% alcohol by volume. So if you are interested in alcohol that has been around for hundreds of years, then head to andong. Jeju Island, a volcanic island off the southern coast of South Korea. It is the largest island in Korea and has unique natural landscapes, including scenic coastlines, waterfalls, lava tubes, and the iconic Halasan Mountain, which is South Korea's highest peak. And it is home of Halasan Soju, named after the island's iconic mountain, which is also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Halasan soju is made using a unique fermentation and distillation process that uses Jeju's natural resources. The water used to make the soju comes from underground springs, which are known for their purity and mineral content. The grains used are sourced locally from Jeju's volcanic soil. The beverage has a smooth and mild taste due to its aging process. The distilled alcohol rests for several months to develop a smoother flavor. It is also a popular ingredient in cocktails and can be mixed with fruit juices to create unique and refreshing drinks. So, depending on where you go in Korea, don't be surprised if you see different variations of popular drinks. Another popular alcohol here is makgeolli. It is Korea's oldest alcoholic beverage. Records from as far back as a thousand years ago during the Goryeo dynasty shows that the drink was around at that time. Makgeolli is an unfiltered rice wine with a cloudy, milky appearance. And the word makgeolli is a combination of the two words, mak and goroda. It means that it's a drink that's been just roughly filtered. It can be found in convenience stores and many restaurants. However, Trying to find other traditional liquors in Korea can be a difficult task for foreigners. But did you know there is a place where you can find all the best and unique traditional alcohols all together? And that is at the Korean Seoul Grand Festival. This is the biggest Korean traditional liquor festival in Korea and takes place every November. It introduces the value and excellence of Korean traditional liquor. And there are also programs that allow you to make makgeolli. I wanted to find out more about the festival, as well as the traditional alcohol that can be found on display there. So I went and took a look for myself. So I'm here at the Korean Seoul Grand Festival 2023, and I've been walking around and trying lots of different types of interesting Korean alcohols. Here they have, uh, obviously, the traditional type of alcohol, like a soju or like a makgeolli, uh, that has interesting locally produced ingredients to their specific region. Also, there are some type of alcohols that they have here, which are like almost like the Korean versions of Western alcohols. So we have brandy and cognac and those type of things. So I took a look at all the booths in the event to find some really interesting alcohols that foreign tourists might be interested in. The first is Pungjong Sage Chun, a liquor made by a brewery in North Chuncheong province. It is brewed with steamed rice cake. 
is a famous Korean drink, which was used as a banquet drink when President Trump and Ivanka Trump visited Korea, wow. which is this one. Okay. So they actually have four different liquors, like spring, summer, fall, and winter. Okay. Uh, so that's like a foreigner's favorite. That's why it was on a banquet. Uh, you can wow. actually... Uh, you can do the tasting. Okay. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, really good. There are people who said it smells like a flower it does, and, yeah. and an apple. I thought it was like apple or something. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, interesting. Over on another stall, I stumbled upon makarut, which is a type of makoli, but with a little twist. Makarut, so that's a yogurt style oh. Korean liqueur. The design would look like a yogurt too, so, and it tastes somewhat like yogurt. <laughs> oh, really? What was the reason why they decided to make... Well, it's makoli, so it's traditional, but... They try to make it in a new and different way. What was the thinking behind it? They wanted to target younger generations. The traditional makgeolli has an image of old people drinking sure. it, so they wanted to lower that barrier by making it like young. That comment interested me. Attracting younger generations. I have talked about traditional alcohol, but the alcohol trends in Korea have been changing. So I went to Zest, a cocktail bar in Seoul that has been named on the world's 50 best bars list. To talk about recent trends and what Korean drinkers like with Sean Woo, the co-founder of the bar. Alright, that's bakery number six. Wow, okay. So, briefly introducing our bar, Zest. So, Zest originally means the citrus peel. So, we're doing uh, lots of effort uh, about sustainability, for example, minimizing waste in our venue as much as possible, using... Korean local liquor as well. Mm-hmm. Not only using local product, which is like, you know, like local fruit ingredients, but we're actually using a lot, lots of Korean liquor. Back in the days, for example, like 10 years ago or five years ago even, like, we had like less choices of Korean liquor. Mm-hmm. We only had bottle of green, bottle of soju, <laughs> and cheap makgeolli. Right. But since like 2015, I remember, when the government passed a new law about the microbreweries. Mm-hmm. So they allowed microbreweries to produce small portion of makgeolli mm-hmm. with the little facilities. We also got talking about the recent trends in Korea. And it seems like the main trend is sustainability. So businesses and bars and restaurants, they're looking towards getting more local ingredients. So they've been building better relationship with farmers and they've been using local liquors. I also became curious about if there were any differences with the way that Korean people drink cocktails and alcohol compared to non-Koreans. This is what Sean had to say. Koreans, we don't like things too sweet. American gas or other foreign gas, in my opinion, mm-hmm. offer more full body than more, you know, round, more full body type of drink. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if you make a sour, you have to make less sweet for the Korean gas. You can use more sweet sweetener for the foreign gas. So it seems like if you go to a decent bar in Korea, you'll be able to taste unique cocktails that contain local ingredients. Before, many Koreans would not see Korean alcohol as diverse or trendy. But it seems that trend is changing. So whether you have traditional alcohol found in certain regions, or try new beverages that contain local ingredients, you'll be able to experience that unique taste. And that is all for my Korean manual today. I have been Richard Larkin. Goodbye.
And that's that for our Lunar New Year holiday edition of Career 24. We'll be back with a regular show tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-wo, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.